you're using the Pew Bible, I believe we're on page 815. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2. I'm going to start by reading the first 12 verses in 1 Peter 2. This is the same passage that we looked at last week, but we're giving it a second look because there's important things that we skipped over. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. Uh, last week we were in the same passage and we covered the big themes of the passage, uh, namely that we are designed by God to live together in community, as was captured so well in that song, as we sang it together, we're a part of a family, the family of God. God's designed us to live together in community. And I found four reasons in the text uh, last week as to why we should do that. One is that as we live together in community with one another, that's how we grow as Christians. You don't do it by yourself, you do it together. Uh, you also, uh, you are helped to not fall away. That was the second reason. As you're in community with one another, we help one another. We're built together, and so we keep another faithful, and we help us to not fall away. Uh, third, we glorify God as we live together in community. You know, God is glorified by us loving one another, and it's hard to love one another when you're the only person in the room. So we're called to live together in community to glorify God. And then lastly, that's how we reach the lost. As the world sees us living this out, this community of love and self-sacrifice for one another, they say, that's wonderful, I want that, and that's the powerful testimony to the truth of the gospel. Uh, so last week, those were the, the reasons why we should be living in community. This week, though, I want to focus on something very practical. Uh, that is, how do we actually pull this off? Uh, because I'm pretty sure that, that we've all, at some point in our lives, you know, <laughs> I'm sure we've all lived in community. We've all we all have families. Uh, we all have other relationships and friendships and, you know, on, on your dorm floor or in various churches or other things. You've experienced community. I'm also pretty confident that in those communities, uh, you've, ex you've had bad experiences. Uh, so I'm sure that you've all experienced community. I'm also pretty sure that you've all uh, experienced bad things about living in community. Uh, and today, I want to I drill down on that a little bit and say, well, what is it? 
What's, what's one really significant thing uh, that causes us to have bad experiences with community? And what can we do about it? So we're going to focus on three verses today. It's the same full passage, but I just want to focus on three verses that we didn't uh, hit as much last week. These are verses 1, 3, and 11. Is everything, is everything all right with my mic today? Or is, am I hearing all right? Okay. I felt like it was weird. All right. So we're in verses 1, 3, and 11. And we're going to ask three questions. You can see them on your outline today. What is the key to living in community? What are the sins that kill community? And then thirdly, uh, how do we get the power to abstain from those sins? And I'm going to warn you up front. This is one of those sermons where if I'm doing my job, you're going to feel bad on the first point, and then you're going to feel really bad on the second point, but then the third point is going to be really great. Okay, so just, just bear with me on this one. Uh, so first, uh, what is the key to living in community? And the answer to that question is that you must wage war against your sin. Okay? The key to living in community is that you must wage war against your sin. Uh, or to put it another way, uh, the problem that you have with communities, those bad experiences, uh, the reason you have problems with communities is because you're a part of them. Okay? Uh, the reason why you have problems in communities is because you're always there. And you bring your problems with you. See, if, if you want to live in community, the first thing you've got to do is you have to wage war against your sin. I, I'm seeing this in verse 11. Let's, let's look there. Uh, Peter says to these folks, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Uh, so Peter's saying here that the key to being a resident alien, if you really want to do that, Here's what you have to do. You have to abstain from your passions of your flesh, which are waging war against your soul. It says, before, before you even start to look at all the things that are going on with everyone else, before you start to, to, to uh, try to fix the problems that exist in the community out there, you need to start with the battle that's raging inside of you. You need to, wage, you need to deal with the sin that's in your soul. Uh, he's talking about these, these sins. He calls them passions of the flesh. You know, that's just, that's just another word for sin, for your, for your lust, for your anger, for your anxiety, for your greed, for your laziness. These things that attack you, these besetting sins that you've got in your life, they are, he says, waging war against your soul. And if you've got these things in your life that are waging war against your soul, they're also waging war against your ability to live in community with other people. You, you can try to go have a relationship with somebody else and, and just ignore the fact that you've got this battle raging inside of you. But sooner or later, since you're a part of that relationship, you're bringing that battle with you, and it's going to come out, and you're going to have the same problems surface again. This is, this is the way that relationships work. You have to start with you. You have to start with you. I remember when Jen and I were on a missions trip in Uganda in college. We were already married at that time, so all the college kids that we were ministering to were like assumed that we had great marriage advice or dating advice. And so they, you know, they said, well, how do you find the right person? You know, I'm, I'm looking for the right person. Everybody's looking for the right person. And so I just passed on to them some advice that I'd heard that I thought was really good. I said, you know, you can't be so concerned about finding the right person. What you need to do right now is work on being the right person. 
I didn't come up with that, that but I thought that was good. I, and I passed that on to them, and they thought it was wonderful. They're like, oh, that's amazing. It's like, well, well really, that's, that's all it is, right? You, you don't be so concerned about finding the perfect person. What you should do is that you should work on being the kind of person that you'd like to marry. You should work on being a person of great godly character instead of trying to hunt that person down because you need to start with yourself. You can find a wonderful person, but if you've still got all this junk going on in your own life, you're going to bring that with you in that relationship, and it's going to be a hindrance to that relationship or to any community. See, this is, a, this is just like an epidemic that we've got in our culture uh, of folks who, who bounce from relationship to relationship, uh, from marriage to marriage, from church to church, from job to job, because it's amazing. Everywhere I go, I have the same problems. How is it that every community is flawed in such a way that I encounter the same problems there? Oh, maybe it's because it's me. Maybe it's because I have not dealt with the sin in my heart, and every time I show up there, I'm bringing the same garbage, and it surfaces in the same ways, and the hindrance to community is that I have not gone to war against the sin in my own life. See, what Peter does, he draws the battle lines for us. This is just what Jesus says when he says, take the log out of your own eye before you get the speck out of the other one. Okay? Peter hung around with Jesus. He picked some stuff up. And he says, the first thing you've got to do is deal with the sin in your life. Wage war against that. And so what I want to do for the rest of the sermon is then ask two more questions to drill down. Well, how do we do that? He just speaks generally here, abstain from passions of the flesh. Well, what specifically is he talking about? What are the sins that kill community? Well, thankfully, I think he gives us that answer back in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says there's, and this is not an exhaustive list, but it's a pretty good one. He says here's, here's five things that you could work on. There's malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. What I want to do now, this is the part where you're going to feel really bad, uh, but what I want to do now is I want to camp out on these, these sins for a little bit and make sure we understand what they are so that we can see that we do them and that we actually have a battle that we need to fight. So let's look at these one by one, these uh, sins in chapter 2, verse 1. Let's start with malice. What is malice? Uh, the word here that's translated in, in most of your translations as malice is just the Greek word for evil, uh, but here it's most people do translate it as, as malice because it has that idea of an intent to do wrong. Malice has, has a kind of a flavor of, of, of you, you have an ill will towards someone. You desire something bad to happen to somebody else. Uh, so think about you know, sports. You're, you're rooting not just for the other team to lose, but for their star quarterback to be injured. Okay? That's, that's more malice. You want something bad to happen to somebody else. Uh, there's lots of examples that you could think of of how we do this. Here's a few to get your juices flowing. Uh, one would be you know, there's a you know, popular person at school or, uh, or just somebody, you know, if you're not in school anymore, somebody who's got their life together. It seems like things are going really well for them. Things are not going so well for you. Uh, you're not quite as popular as them or, or you've got problems that you think that they don't have. And so you don't want anything really bad to happen to them, uh, but it'd be nice if they kind of got taken down a notch. Like, it, it just seems like they've never experienced any pain or trouble at all, and you just think, you know, they need to learn a lesson. They need to, to really experience this hardship that I've experienced. You know, I'm not asking for anything super bad to happen to them, but it would be nice if they just got taken down a notch. 
Okay, that, that little desire in your heart to root for someone else to, to not have the best life, uh, that's malice. That's malice. Or think about this in a, a more of a personal relationship. Uh, one of the things that happens in personal relationships is that you get hurt. You hurt one another. Uh, so say in a marriage or a close friendship, somebody hurts you. Now when you respond to that hurt by uh, withholding affection or, or doing something to make the other person get hurt back, okay, to, to, to make them experience the pain that you've experienced, say, well, you've hurt me, so now I'm going to do something so, so that I can cause you to experience pain, that is malice. They've hurt you, so now you want them to experience that same pain that they've caused for you. Instead of just forgiving them, you make them grovel. You, you withhold affection. You make them work for it. You don't, you don't forgive them right away. Take some time. Make them feel the pain. No, that's malice. Okay, that's malice. We do that. doesn't mean it's okay. It's malice. Uh, or how about this? At work or some organization, uh, you've, got, you've got an idea for something that should be done. Somebody else has a competing idea. Uh, yours doesn't win for whatever reason. Uh, the other person's idea gets chosen, their project gets picked, and, and now the whole organization says, we're going to go this way, we're going to do this. Well, what do you do? Do you pout? Do you sulk? Do you drag your feet? Do you make offhanded remarks talking about, you know, every time something doesn't go right, oh, well, I should have done my idea. Because you're rooting for the other idea to fail, that's malice. You, you want the other people to not experience victory. You want them to be torn down. We can multiply examples, but we've got other sins to get to. Um, but this kills community. Do you see that? Do you see how malice is just destructive to community? If you are actively rooting for the other people to fail, that's the antithesis of love. It's, it's the opposite. You can't be building one another up, joining together in love. Uh, your marriage can't flourish if you're tearing down your spouse. Your church can't flourish if you're rooting for the other people to fail. Do you, do you see how this works? It, it kills community. Peter says you need to abstain from it because you're meant to be built together. Deceit. Deceit, or some of you, I, I prefer the translation guile. I, I like that word, guile. Uh, this is really a, an interesting word because the, the Greek word uh, is, is derived from the word for a fishing lure. I think that's a wonderful picture because uh, what is a fishing lure except an exercise in deceit? Uh, it's, it's this hook. It's a death instrument. It's here, it's here to kill the fish and yet you dress it up and you make it look like food. You make it look so appealing and wonderful. And the fish comes along and it says, oh, I want that. And then you've got it, right? That's how deceit works. That's our lies. We've got this reality. Uh, but we want, we want to get something. We want things to turn out the way we want them to turn out. And so we dress up the truth. We make things look differently than what they are so that we get what we want out of it. And other people might be, get hurt, but we get what we want. It's deceit and guile. Now, obviously, there's the, the blatant ones of, of just lying flat out. You can figure those ones out on your own. But I thought I'd give you some more subtle examples. Uh, how about when somebody asks you to volunteer for something uh, and you don't want to do it, but instead of telling them you don't want to do it, uh, you crick, uh, try to come up with some excuse. You just scramble for some excuse and, and you, you, you make one up because you don't have one. And so you tell uh, the person, well, I, I'd love to do that, but I have this other thing that day, and I can't do it. I'm so sorry. Right? That's deceit. And maybe that one is too obvious. How about, how about someone asks you to volunteer for something, you don't want to do it, and you don't have to make up an excuse. You actually have one. And you're so excited that you have this excuse, but you still tell the person, oh, I would love to have done that. 
but I have this other thing that I have to do. And you didn't really love to, you would have said no anyway, if, if you had the, the gumption to just be honest, you would have just said no, but no, you want the credit. You want the credit for being the sort of person who will help out while at the same time not actually having to do anything. Okay, that's deceit. It's deceit. Um, or here's another one that just slayed me. Uh, there, I was reading a, a book by John Ortberg, and he gave this example that, guilty. Uh, he said when, when his kids were younger, uh, they would wake up in the middle of the night, and they would come, and they needed a parent. Not anyone specifically, just a parent in the middle of the night. And so he would wake up first, and he would lay there and pretend that he was still asleep. Okay, ever done that? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and then, so he would wait until his wife woke up, and then he would pretend like he was waking up. He would be very groggy, uh, and, he, and he would make some sort of effort, like, oh, honey, I'll, I'll get this one. I'll get it. I got it. And, you know, just in time that she's already committed to do it, so he gets the credit for volunteering to help. What a wonderful servant husband, and yet, oh, just happens to be a heavy sleeper. Okay. Now, that's, that's deceit. That's deceit. You know, you're, you're pretending uh, that, that something is true when it's not really true because you want to get what you want out of this. Yeah, you want to get to sleep. Um, the temptation is strong. <laughs> you know, and again, we could, we could spend all day on this. Uh, but it's there, right? You, you see, just, uh, I hope that's enough to get you started. Um, you might not have young kids in the house, but you, you've got things. You've got uh, ways in which you frame things, in which you uh, offer to do things because you're trying to get something out of it, in which you, you pretend to be nice to someone because you want what they have, but you don't really love them, uh, which you try to, you do something for your spouse, not because you're serving them, but because you hope to cash that in later for something that you can get. You know, th these, these things, it's all around us. We're trying to shape reality so that we get what we want. And it's deceit. And, and you see, that kills community. You know, we, we, we can laugh about the, you know, the not getting out of bed for the kids thing, and yet that destroys intimacy in marriage. Okay? Because sooner or later your spouse catches on. You know, the fish bites the hook once, and then they learn uh, that you're really not telling the truth. It, it, they, they wise up, and then, you know, every time, it, the, just the barriers go up. The, the spouse, well, I don't, I don't, is he really sleeping? Is he just faking it? You know, you're, you're destroying intimacy. You're putting walls up between yourselves. This happens at church. It happens in, you know, any time you begin to lie to someone, they begin to wise up. You know, they ask you to volunteer, and every time you've got an excuse, every time you say, I would love to help, and then they give you another opportunity, you say, oh, I can't do that one. Look, just say no, okay? Because deceit destroys community. Everybody gets the idea that you're in it for yourself, because you are. Keep it going. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. This word just means play acting. It comes from the word for, for actors, for play acting. Just pretending to be something that you're not. Uh, Matthew 23, if you want to look at it later, gives the definitive uh, exploration of hypocrisy where Jesus lays into the Pharisees and he tells them over and over again, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. Why? Because they were preaching things, they were saying things with their mouths, but not doing them. The things that they did were just so other people would notice them. And Jesus says, you are like tombs that have been painted white, shining and sparkly on the outside, but full of rotting, diseased, decaying bones on the inside. Now, outsiders of the church will tell you that that's the number one problem of the church. I don't know if we should necessarily take their word for it, 
They might not have a good definition of hypocrisy, but uh, at the very least, we need to pay attention to this because this is serious. And instead of giving you a bunch of examples, let me just say this. Uh, I, I know that you sinned this week. I, mean, I didn't have any cameras in your house or anything like that, but I know you sinned. Why? Because the Bible tells me so, and because I'm a human and I sin too. So, so I know that you've sinned. Like, I, I know that all of you here have sinned today, Pro- probably, probably today. I mean, you've sinned this week, Pro- probably today, probably uh, those with young kids, I know that you've sinned this morning. Um, <laughs> like, so so it's, it's true. I know that you've sinned. And yet, I wonder, as you sit here in this room uh, with all of us, does anybody else here know the ways in which you've sinned this week, besides your family. Your family's going to know, because it's usually against them. Uh, But does anybody here besides your immediate family know kind of some specific sins that you have done this week? Or are you keeping it all to yourself? Because that's the fuel of hypocrisy. It says, I'm just, I can keep it together for an hour, a week, and I can pretend like everything's okay and not let anybody in and then go back and, and be totally different. Look, we know that you're, you've sinned, okay? Let's just put that on the table. Uh, what, what's helpful in, in building community is being able to have, you know, at least one or two people with whom you are honest, and you'll just say, man, I really screwed up this week in this or in that. Would you pray for me? Would you help me to be accountable to grow? Because if you don't have that, then you're just going to become this hypocrite saying, I've got to keep it together when I'm with everybody else uh, and act like I have got no sin. And hypocrisy is a community killer doubly. It's, it's community killer when it works and when it doesn't. Because when hypocrisy is working, when you're actively projecting this air of having it all together, you're killing community because nobody feels like they're good enough to be with you. Uh, you know, they're like, wow, that person really has it all together. I don't, so there's no way in which I can have a relationship with them because I'm just going to feel like a, a miserable person all the time because they're clearly perfect and I'm not. So when it's working, when you're succeeding in fooling people, uh, it's, it's a community killer. And when it's not working, it's a community killer. Because when people look at you and say, uh, they think they've got it all together, but uh, they're clearly faking, well, nobody wants to be with somebody like that either. You don't want to be with a faker, someone who's always trying to project an air of having it together and yet doesn't. You see, being a hypocrite, pretending like you've got it together, just kills community. No one wants to be with perfect people, and those who are faking are just not genuine. Fourth, there's envy. Envy. This is an easy one, right? We know this. It's jealousy. It's covetousness. It's wanting what somebody else has. The obvious one is is stuff, so we won't spend any time on that, just wanting what other people have. Uh, But what about wanting the the life that other people have? Uh, I alluded to this earlier, but, you know, some of us um, have a a hard time because we look at other people and we think, uh, especially as you start to live in community and you know their lives, you think, this person has a better job than I do. This person has a better, uh, their kids have turned out better than mine. This person has uh, better health than I do. And instead of rejoicing with the others that their life is so good, you envy them that, that your life is not as good as theirs. Okay? So, so the way community works, you're supposed to rejoice with one another. When, things go, when someone gets a better job, you're supposed to say, that's wonderful, praise God for that, that you got a better job. But what envy does, it says, you got a better job, why didn't I get a better job? I, I resent you for having that better job. I resent you for having uh, success. And of course that kills community. Because it turns the other people in the room into the enemy. 
It turns the other people in the enemy. It says, I, I'm rooting against you. This goes hand in glove with malice. In fact, if you look in the Bible, you see these same sins repeated in the same list all over, all the time. So you, you, you're rooting against the other person. You, you can't rejoice in good things that happen, in success, in good health, in, 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 in prosperity. You, you can't rejoice with other people because every time they get more, in your mind, it means that you've gotten less. And you need to tear them down because you are not content. And so instead of being built together in love, you're ripped apart by your resentment. Number five, slander. Uh, it just means speaking evil, speaking evil of someone. It's got the connotation of, of specifically hurting someone's reputation. Some examples of this, um, you know, when, when spouses get together, or not, not spouses, when spouses are apart and they get together with other same-sex groups. So when, uh, when, when wives, or a bunch of wives are together, a bunch of husbands together, a lot of times the conversation turns towards the spouse that's not there. And, and amazingly, it's not usually about how wonderful the spouse is that's not there. Uh, it becomes kind of a race to the bottom where you're telling jokes at the expense of your spouse. You're, uh, yeah, it's fun because you're getting laughs, but you're tearing down your spouse. That's slander. Okay? That's not being witty at a party. That's slander. Um, or with churches. Uh, I mean, just, I just wonder, how do you, again, I don't have cameras in your house, but, but how do you talk about your church and the people of your church? What's, what's kind of your normal tone? When you're talking to people about your church, are you often emphasizing the negative? Uh, are you criticizing? Um, are you telling stories and maybe uh, a little deceit there, a little coloring of the truth so that you come out as the hero? Uh, so, that, so that everybody else has got it wrong, but you've got it right? Well, that's slander. Okay? Tearing people down, hurting their reputation, speaking evil about them, especially when they're not there. Now, of course that kills community. Of course it does. You know, James has very strong things to say about that in James chapter 3. Can, can the same tongue, can the same mouth utter curses and, and tearing down of people and, and then turn around and utter blessings and building up with the same people? Can, can you do that? No, you can't do that. It's like a, it's a spring of water that's bringing both salt water and fresh water. It doesn't happen. You don't do that. If you're slandering people, you're not at the same time building them up. It's a killer of community. Okay, I don't do this every week, but I hope you feel bad. I, I, I hope, I, in a sense, I hope you do feel bad. Sin should make us feel bad. As we look in the mirror of the law of God and see his standards and then really look at ourselves, we should feel bad. I mean, do, do you see what a hindrance you are, and I'm including myself in there, to community? The, the problem with Christian community it's not that we haven't found the perfect method or the perfect church. Or it, it's the, the problem is that we don't have perfect people, you included. And so Peter says you have to abstain from these things. If you want a community of love, it's not going to just happen. You've got to work at it. And the work begins not with other people, but with you. Because you are malicious, and you are deceitful, and you're a hypocrite, and you're envious, and you slander, and you tear apart the church of God. So what do we do with that? Well, here's the good news. And I hope it falls on you like a healing balm. How do you get the power to abstain from these sins? Verse 3. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. 
How do you defeat these sins? I hope, I hope you feel bad. I hope you're squirming in your seat saying, I need to get rid of these sins in my life. How do I do it? Here's how you do it. You taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, some of you right now uh, are feeling bad, and, and you're feeling the guilt, and you're saying, oh, I hate this about myself. And, and you're taking that guilt, which is powerful, you're saying, I'm going to apply this guilt, and I'm going to use that as motivation to change. And I'm, I'm going to do this in my own strength. Well, I want you to know that guilt peters out pretty quickly. That you might be feeling bad right now, but you give it a little distance in a couple hours, you won't feel so bad. You'll say, that wasn't that big of a deal. And you'll rationalize it away, and it just won't be effective in defeating these sins. Okay, it's not good enough just to rely on your own guilt feelings and your strength and maybe some new rules to conquer this. You need something better. You need to taste and see that the Lord is good. There's these stories in Greek mythology. I'm a big fan of Greek mythology. Loved it as a kid. I still do. There's these things in Greek mythology called the sirens. You may have heard of them. They're these female-type creatures that lived on an island, and their job was that when sailors went by, they would sing a beautiful song, and sailors would uh, lose control of their ships, and they would go crashing in the rocks, and they'd be doomed. And in all of Greek mythology, there's two ships that made it past the sirens. Okay, there's two ships. One of them you probably know about. It was Odysseus, or Ulysses. Uh, he, he knew about the sirens, and so he told all his crew to put wax in their ears so they wouldn't hear the sirens, uh, but then he would get tied to the mast, so that he, and he wouldn't have wax in his ears, and they were supposed to ignore anything he said, and as, they, as the ship went by, he would hear the siren song, and he would want to go after it, but he'd be tied down, so he wouldn't do it, and they had, no, they had wax in their ears, so they'd just keep on going, and it worked. Okay, it worked. The ship went by, he was at the mast, he was screaming at them to let him go, because he wanted to go. He wanted to go... Uh, listen to the sirens. He wanted to go over there. He was under their spell. Uh, but the ropes held, and he made it by. Um, now, there's another guy who made it through, another ship. Uh, his name is Jason. He had the Argonauts. You know those guys, Jason the Argonauts? It's not a band. It's from Greek mythology. <laughs> so they, they're, they're going by the sirens. He knew about the same thing. He knew how Ulysses did it, but he, he had a different tack. He had brought along with him a guy named Orpheus, who was an amazing harpist. So they're sailing along. The sirens start their song, and Jason cues up Orpheus, and he starts to play his music. Now, these guys don't have wax in their ears. Nobody's tied down. But the music that Orpheus plays is just so beautiful. It's so much better that, that they don't even want to go to the sirens. Right? The, the music that Orpheus is playing is so much more beautiful. It overpowers the music of the sirens, and they sail right on by. They don't get crashed. Now, Greek mythology is not inspired, but we can get some lessons out of that. Okay? What, what the... Odysseus did, that th timey to the mast approach to defeating temptation. That's what we try to do a lot in our own strength. We, we, that, that's legalism. That's, let's put some rules in place. Oh, malice is wrong, uh, envy is wrong, deceit is wrong. Well, how do we even know what rules you would come up with to stop with that? Okay, but we try. We try to tie ourselves down. We lash ourselves with our guilt feelings and say, I'm going to stop doing that. And, and the problem is it's not going to work because as you're going, you still desire the temptation. You haven't made a change in your heart. There's nothing better than the temptation. Odysseus, Ulysses, he still wanted to, to go to the sirens. He still loved it. See, what, what you need is not to be tied down with rules to help you defeat the sin or tied down with guilt. What you need is a better song. What you need is better music. What you need is to taste and see that the Lord is good, that he's better than the sin. You see? That was the trick for Jason and the Argonauts. They had something better, something more beautiful. They weren't tempted by this anymore. And what Peter's saying here in chapter 2, verse 3, he's saying, if you've tasted that the Lord is good, then you don't want to do these things anymore. 
you don't need to do them anymore. Right? Look, look, hypocrisy, right? Where does that come from? Where does hypocrisy come from? It comes from not tasting that the Lord is good. You haven't really believed the gospel if you're a hypocrite. Hypocrisy comes from not understanding grace. It says, I'm not good enough, therefore I need to pretend to be good enough, and you live your whole life in this pretense. Look, you're doing that because you haven't understood the gospel. If, if you see that, first of all, you are such a wicked sinner that there's nothing you could do apart from Jesus dying for you, uh, and then that he has showered his grace upon you and forgiven you of everything, well, then you don't need to pretend, do you? You, 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 could, you could talk to somebody during the week, and you could say, I really blew it with my kids today. I was so angry. You should have seen me. I, I repent of that. I don't want to do that again, but, man, I just don't have it together. That's terrifying for someone who doesn't believe the gospel, because your whole worth is built on looking like you're, you know, perfect. But if you believe the gospel, if you taste and see that God forgives you, well, it just cuts the roots right out of hypocrisy, right? And all these other things, malice and envy and deceit and slander, where's that come from? That all comes from the fact that you're trying to protect yourself. You've got to tear the people down. You, you desire what they have. You've got to lie to protect yourself. Why do you have to protect yourself if you believe the gospel? You already have everything in Jesus. He has given you uh, his complete affirmation. You've been adopted by God. You're in his family. You have nothing to fear. So you don't have to tear the people down. Instead, you can offer yourself in sacrificial love for them. You see, it's, it's the sin. The sin can be overwhelming if we just focus on that. We say, how, how can I defeat all of this sin? Well, it's really quite simple. You just have to taste and see that the Lord is good. That Jesus is better than the sin. That he completely satisfies you. That you have no need to, to engage in, in malice. I mean, if Jesus is your treasure... Why are you envying someone else's car? If you, if you have Jesus, why, do you, why are you upset that, that, that your health is not good? Right? I mean, I understand. I understand at a certain level why you're upset. But, but do you see, you're, you don't have to be envious. You don't have to be jealous. You don't have to tear other people down because you're satisfied in Christ. See, this is the heart of Christian community. Believing the gospel Believing that Jesus himself, um, this is how he formed Christian community, right? He gave his life to die for his enemies, that we might become his brothers and sisters. And if we get that, if if we taste and see that the Lord is good, if we really believe the gospel, we get that deep in our hearts, then it cuts out the root of all these other sins, and not just the ones listed here, all the sins, and we begin to be able to love one another. And when we really love one another, when we put away deceit and malice and envy and hypocrisy, I mean, what a place. What a place. It sounds like heaven. Who wouldn't want to be a part of a community like that? So you start with yourself. You believe the gospel. You kill your sin. And then Jesus knits together all of us into community. And the world looks at us and they says, how they love one another. I want to be a part of that. Let's pray that God would make that a reality for us today. Father, I love the gospel, and I I love the...
forgiveness that you give us. Um, at the same time, I, I want to feel the weight of my sin. And, and I want us all to feel the weight of our sin, the ways in which we actively tear other people down and, and, and lie and, and are envious and, and are faking it. I want us to feel that, Lord, so that we will, so we will take action that we will turn to your gospel and and ask you to forgive us and to empower us to to let go of that sinful lifestyle, to put it off, to abstain from those things. Oh, that we might have something so much better, because we do. Oh, Father, give us in this church real and and, and gospel-saturated community. Help us to really love one another, Um, to not put up a, a show to be willing to, to disagree and to have conflict, but to do it in a way that's, that's honoring to you, uh, that we would not be constrained by being nice to another, but that we would truly love one another, that we have a confidence that comes from being secure in you, and we would flourish as we are knit together into a healthy and strong family of God. God, that is a work of the Spirit, and we need you to do that in my heart, in our hearts, as we humble ourselves before you, Jesus, kill the sin in our hearts that we might love one another, honor you, and reach the lost. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we want to move to our time of communion now, taking the Lord's Supper. And it's just wonderful. I, I, I love how, you know, if you're preaching the Bible and taking communion, they always go together. Because this is just enacted, this is just the the gospel in in bread and, and juice, right? We're just we're reminded of of the central things of our trace. We we get to taste and see that the Lord is good as we as we physically take this bread and taste it and, and take this juice and taste it. We're experiencing a, a reminder of what we profess with our with our faith that that we desperately need Jesus. Okay, the death the the, the death of Jesus, His body broken for us, His blood shed for us. It is all there is. Right? That's, that's why we do the same thing month after month. We don't, we don't add to communion. We don't add to, we don't, you know, well, you know what? How about, uh, let's put a burger up there too. Or let's, you know, let's put some, let's put, uh, put some flowers up there. No, it's like there's the body and the blood. It's the sacrifice of Jesus. That's all we need. So as we take this together, this is a great application for the sermon because one thing that we're doing as we take this is we're all admitting that we're sinners. Okay, no perfect people need to take communion. So when you take this, that's one way you're, you're battling hypocrisy, is when you take this, you're saying, I'm a sinner. I need Jesus to forgive me. So that's great. So we all get to confess with our hands and with our mouth together that we're sinners. And as we do this, we also get to say, I'm, I'm tasting the forgiveness of Jesus. And it's good. It's good. And we get to do it together. So I'd like to invite the ushers to come forward, and we will take communion together um, and of course, don't let this be a opportunity for hypocrisy. So if this, this table at our church is open to everyone who has put their faith in Jesus, so if you really have believed the gospel, then take this because it's a sign of what you've done inside. But if you haven't done that, uh, then don't be a hypocrite. Don't feel pressured by us because that's the last thing we want. Just let it pass you by. Um, all right.